Well, good morning, Embassy Church. Thank you all so much for gathering this morning. It's good to see all of you again. We've been going through the book of Jonah these past few weeks, and today we're in Jonah chapter 3. In order to understand Jonah chapter 3, you need to know what goes on in chapters 1 and 2. So for those unfamiliar, we need a recap of what happened so far. So previously, in the book of Jonah chapter 1, God calls the prophet Jonah to go to a place, a city called Nineveh, and call out against it. Jonah flees to Tarshish. It's another city, but in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, and God hurls a wind that causes a sea storm. The sailors are terrified, and they discover that the problem is Jonah. Jonah tells them who his God is, and then he tells them to hurl him overboard into the sea to stop the storm. So they hurl him off the ship into the sea. The storm stops, and then the converted pagan sailors, who are no longer pagan, worship Yahweh. Chapter 2. Jonah is sinking in the water and is swallowed by a great fish. In the fish, Jonah says a prayer, but we as readers have a hard time determining what he's really saying. You know, Jonah, does, does, he, really, does he want to live or die? Is he lying and being deceitful, or is he being genuine and sincere, but he's delusional? In Jonah 1, Jonah paid money to take a vehicle out into the sea. In Jonah 2, God appointed another vehicle to take Jonah back to dry land, free of charge. And that's how chapter 2 ends. The fish vomits Jonah out onto the land. And between chapters 2 and 3, we have no idea where prophet Jonah is. He's definitely back on dry land, but that's all we know. And so that's where we pick up here in chapter 3. Um, You can find Jonah chapter 3 on page 727 in your Black Pew Bibles, 727. So, please follow along with me as I read Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, to the least of them. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Last verse. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. 
Main idea of the message this morning, here it is. Because the word of God transforms us, we repent and God relents. Because the word of God transforms us, we repent and God relents. Something to keep in mind, uh, in mind, in the back of your minds, is the contrast between Jonah and the Ninevites. Okay? We saw this back in chapter 1, the contrast between Jonah's actions and the pagan sailors' actions. Here in chapter 3, as we work through it verse by verse, I want you all to pay attention to the amount of effort Jonah shows in his actions and the amount of effort the pagan Ninevites show in their actions. And the chapter begins and ends with God's actions. So, I'm going to read uh, verse 1 again. But we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, How many of you are having a deja vu moment right now? Jonah 3 and Jonah 1 include almost, it, starts, it begins the, almost the exact same way. The first verses are the same, except in this introduction, it includes the word second or a second time. So in the Old Testament, when you see this word second in the, in the, in the uh, prophetic introductory formula, you know, this isn't common, but when you see it there, the author does that to either further explain or clarify the preceding prophecy. The reason this is interesting to us is, number one, we haven't actually heard the prophecy, right? Number one. And number two, the word of God in verse two isn't further explained or clarified, but it's repeated. God repeats his commands. Chapter 1, arise, go to Nineveh, call out. Chapter 3, arise, go to Nineveh, and call out. God repeating himself here is important, and here's why. Did God change Jonah's mission? Did he change his mission? Did any of Jonah's thoughts and actions in chapters 1 and 2 convince God to change his plans for him? Let's say you're a cop in the, around here in the Palatine area. Okay, you're, you're a police officer, and you're sitting in your police vehicle in a 20-mile-per-hour zone, and then you see a car zoom by, and you clock him going at 60 miles per hour. This person's going 40 over the speed limit, so, you know, you start driving, you turn on your siren and your, and your lights, you uh, pull the car over, and you walk up, and you say, you know, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? And he says to you, yeah, I think I was going a little over the speed limit. But you know, officer, I think the speed limit should really be 35. Aside from the fact that he was really going 60 then, and not 35, did this man convince you? Did he convince you? Because he thinks the speed limit should be over 20, and because he chose to speed over 20, did the speed limit change? Do you think any of your thoughts or actions in the chapters of your life can convince God to change his plans for you. You know, God's talking to Jonah, but I think he's, he's talking to us too. What's God telling us? What's his plan for believers? God calls all of us into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, which causes us to love him and trust him, and as a natural result of your love for God and really God's love for you, you love and serve other people in your life. See, it's on this foundation 
It's on this divine calling that we make more specific decisions for ourselves using the discernment that God has already gifted us with, right? You know, things like who you should date or what job to pursue or where you should live. Those things are important, yes. But God calls all of us on a more important mission, an actual mission. And I believe it's captured well in our church's mission statement. Did you all know we had a mission statement? The, the mission of Embassy Church is to glorify Christ by making disciples of all nations. To glorify Christ by making disciples of all nations. It's on the church website, if you don't believe me. How many of us are doing that? How many of us are doing that? How many times do we let our feelings and our thoughts and our emotions get in the way of us spreading the gospel and discipling one another? I talked about an introductory formula back in chapter one, right? Do you all remember that? So in the same way, we have things like dear so-and-so uh, to, to introduce letters or once upon a time to introduce fairy tales, verses one and two act as an introduction to a very long prophetic message by an obedient prophet. We didn't see either of those two things in the beginning of the story. But because we see the same introductory formula again in chapter 3, I think the, re the ancient readers still somewhat expect this amazing prophecy for Nineveh at some point. So remember, the two components of the prophetic literature genre, and there are a lot more you know, components, but there are at least two, and it's this. Long prophetic message from God and an obedient prophet of God. Keep that in mind as we read verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Literally, it's a great city to God. Three days journey in breadth. So remember, remember the two typical components of prophetic Old Testament books. Obedient prophet, long message. If God is consistent, which I believe he is, if God is consistent with how he provides prophetic messages based on the other uh, prophetic books we have in the Old Testament, God gave Jonah a very thorough, comprehensive prophecy. The prophecy would include, like all the other ones, a mention of God. It would have a mention, a mention of God. It would include how the people have sinned, how God is going to punish them, how the people must repent, and how God will forgive them. God's long prophetic message to Jonah would provide the full context of the prophecy, which makes Jonah's prophecy in the second half of verse 4 really weird. Here's Jonah's entire prophecy. And I think I got ahead of myself, but look at, look, look, look at the entire prophecy. Verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it? That's it? How many words is that? In your English, in the ESV Bible, Jonah says eight words. In the Hebrew, it's worse. He says five words. Five words. So let's say there's someone in your life that you don't like, hypothetically, and this person is an atheist. You really don't want to, but you know God wants you to share the gospel of Jesus with this person. It could be a bully at school. It could be a convicted murderer. It doesn't matter, okay? So you meet this person, and you, proclaim, you prepare to proclaim the gospel message. In your mind, you already know what you should say, and this is, this is how you've prepped it. 
Hey friend, there is a God and he loves us and wants us to trust and obey him. He's holy and perfect, but we choose not to trust and obey him. And because we are evil and we do evil things, God and his righteousness separates us from him. We choose ourselves over God. We don't choose heaven, but we choose hell. Because of our sins, I am going to hell. You are going to hell. But God, the Father, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world as a man. Jesus was crucified on the cross for our sins in our place. And after being buried on the third day, he came back to life and ascended into heaven. Sinners like you and me, who are saved by Jesus, are made righteous through his righteousness and reunited to God. So we must repent of our sins and ask God for forgiveness. Today, do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Pretty good, right? That's the full gospel message that you have in your mind. Great job. You know what to say. But you choose to only say a part of the gospel. You look this person right in the eyes and you say, you are going to hell. Five words, that's all you say. That's, that's your gospel presentation. And that's what you're seeing here. That's what you're seeing here in, in Jonah. Well, what, what's interesting is when you look at, and I skipped ahead of verse 4, but if you look at verse 3, it's, you see here that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Jonah's obeying God? Jonah's obeying God. He's finally doing it. It seems like Jonah is now an obedient prophet. He's doing it. He's finally doing it. God said, arise. Jonah arose. God said, go. Jonah goed. It's not, goed isn't a real word. Jonah went, but it's the same word. God, uh, Jonah went, but it's the same word. God said to call out. Jonah calls out in verse 4 that we just referenced. Jonah is finally doing what a, what a prophet is supposed to do. What changed? What changed between chapters 2 and 3 that caused Jonah to finally agree to fulfill his divine calling? It seems so far that Jonah had a heart change, and I say it like that on purpose. The text doesn't explicitly give us the why behind the change in Jonah's action, but I have my own personal conclusion for the why. And I'll tell you all later. But for now, we can see that God's persistent and gracious and powerful pursuit had something to do with God's change in action. This idea of God chasing Jonah around, uh, some of you might think of this as a, as a bit excessive, right? God demonstrates relentless pursuit. But once you see God as a father, then this makes a lot of sense. I argue that this is what a loving parent does. Right? This is what a loving father does for when a son or a daughter runs away from home. Don't forget this embassy. The reason why God chases you when you run away from home is because he loves you more than the world does. God loves you more than the world does. He loves you more than you love yourself. Okay, so we're still looking at verse 3. And I want you all to look at the, the last part of the verse. Three days journey. So what does that mean? Nineveh being a three days journey. It could mean several things, but most likely it means that it would take three days from the outside to walk into the center of the city. The author is telling us that if Jonah wants to be as effective and influential as he can be, 
he needs to journey three days. So that's important. Remember that. Jonah needs three days to journey. Keep that in mind as we look at the first part of verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. The text says it's a three-day journey. How many days does Jonah journey? One. Jonah only goes one day's worth before proclaiming the, the prophecy. Here, the author is hinting that although it seemed like Jonah is this completely heart-changed, obedient prophet back, you know, you know, back in verse 3, it's very possible that Jonah actually hasn't changed much. I'm calling it a hint, but every Old Testament scholar I know who has studied the book of Jonah sees this narrator's hint as way too obvious, and you see it in the entire verse in verse 4, and we address the second half when we talked about the size of Jonah's prophecy. Five words. So we talked about the size of Jonah's uh, proclaimed prophecy. Let's talk about the content of what Jonah proclaimed. What is Jonah's prophecy? Jonah's prophecy is discouraging. It's vague. It seems incomplete. What does Jonah's prophecy not contain? Everything else you would expect in God's prophecy. The nation's wrongdoing, that's missing. And that's the reason. That's the reason for their upcoming punishment. Their sins, that's missing. God calls for the people to repent. That's missing. And that's the solution, to turn from their sins, their idol worship, their violence. That's missing. The promise of forgiveness, where is that? That's missing. Where is God's name in the prophecy? Jonah doesn't even mention God. God's name is missing in God's prophecy. It's as if Jonah cherry-picked one sentence from God's word out of its context and applied it to the situation. Does that remind you of something that he did in chapter 2? Maybe Jonah hasn't changed, or at least his heart. I want us to spend some time on this word overthrown. Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this word overthrown is, is, is really important, it's significant. It's significant because this word is ambiguous. And God chose this word on purpose. God chose this word on purpose. Overthrown means destruction, annihilation, obliteration, gloom and doom. Overthrown can also mean change, an overturn. Reformation, transformation. The text shows us that Jonah and Nineveh interpreted the word the first way, the natural way, destruction. Earlier I mentioned that I have my own assessment of what's going on uh, that caused Jonah's obedience in chapter 3, his change in action from chapter 1. So this is my my own assessment. Between verses 2 and 3, God tells Jonah... The mes- uh, God tells Jonah to call out, and I'm going to quote God here, the message that I tell you. So between verses 2 and 3, God tells Jonah the message. God tells him everything. Jonah hears the entire prophecy, and hearing the whole prophecy, he also hears this one clause. Nineveh shall be overthrown. This idea of Jonah hating the Ninevites, how he wants to see all of them killed, is hinted 
in chapters 1 and 2 and here in chapter 3. I'm not going to talk about chapter 4. I don't want to spoil it for everyone. But the idea of Jonah hating the Ninevites, hating Nineveh, is implied all throughout the first three chapters of the book of Jonah. So, when he hears overthrown, here's that word, he takes the natural interpretation and thinks, oh, God changed his mind. He will overthrow them. He will destroy all of them in 40 days. Yeah, God is gracious. Yes, God is merciful. But he's also a just God. Finally, justice. And so he doesn't pass up the opportunity to tell Israel's enemies that God's going to destroy them all. We see a one-day journey. We see a five-word prophecy. Yes, you could say that Jonah is finally obeying God, but he's doing the absolute bare minimum. Most of you in this room are believers. How many of you feel like you're doing the absolute bare minimum? Not, I, want to, I want to be clear about this. Not the bare minimum to retain your salvation. It's not the bare minimum to retain your salvation, but the bare minimum to express your salvation. If you were put on trial for being Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Jonah's minimal actions in verse 4 makes verse 5 shocking. I'm going to read the first half of verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Remember the illustration I shared earlier. You tell this non-believer you don't like them. Uh, you say you are going to hell. And then the person looks at you just with tears in the eyes. Right? You, you didn't say anything else. You're going to hell. And this person looks at you and says, oh no, I need to believe in Jesus Christ. You don't like this person. How shocked and disappointed would you be? People would never believe you if you told them the story about what happened. But this did happen before. And it didn't happen to just one person. It happened to an entire city of people. Jonah does the bare minimum. But God takes the bare minimum of Jonah and he fully maximizes it. The results of Jonah's bare minimum work are shockingly effective. The outcome is unbelievable. Maybe for Nineveh, overthrown doesn't mean destruction. Maybe for Nineveh, overthrown means transformation. This is where you see the first half of our main idea this morning. The first half of the main idea. God's word transforms us. We have been transformed by the word of God. We see people fasting in here, which people did in the Old Testament to seek God's mercy. And we also see people putting on sackcloth, which is a symbol of repentance. And then at the end of verse 5, you see this, uh, this phrase, greatest of them to the least of them. Who's the narrator talking about? The narrator is talking about everybody. Everybody. Lottie Dottie, everybody. Every single person experienced the mercy of God and participated in the fast. And, and speaking of the greatest, mentions the greatest, who would be considered the greatest person in the city of Nineveh? The greatest person maybe in all of Assyria. Well, that would be the king. I'm going to read the first half of verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. 
Everything going on here in verse 6 is chronological. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 and look at the sequence. The sequence is vital. The word of God reaches the king of Nineveh first. Then the king rises from his throne, and then he takes off his royal robes, and then he puts on sackcloth. Remember, putting on sackcloth, that's a symbol of repentance. And then lastly, he sits down in the ashes, in the dust. This pagan man is the most powerful and authoritative person in the entire city, possibly the entire nation of Assyria, and his movements in verse 6 demonstrate amazing humility. What if the political candidate you support did this on live television? What if our president of the United States did this on an international stage? How would that look like to the world? Politically, this doesn't look good. You don't want your public leaders to do things like this. You want them to be proud and, and strong and dominant. Our God has the power to bring the most powerful man on the planet to his knees. God here doesn't display power by his wrath, but he displays power by his mercy. You can see a great contrast here between the king of Nineveh and prophet Jonah in chapter 1. Jonah arose and he fled. The king arose and he sat down. And after the king sits down, he makes a proclamation of verses 7 through 9. So before we look at verses 7 through 9, remember in verse 5, it talks about how Nineveh believed God and how they began fasting. So the people began fasting first, uh, it seems. And in verse 6, the king receives the word and then responds to the word. So, if you see verses 5 and 6 as sequential, then the, then the king actually intensifies the fast, because the people were already fasting, and then the king intensifies it. When, just so you all know, when, pe when fasting, people back then fasted from food, right? They still got to drink water. And when wearing sackcloth, only human beings wore sackcloth. If you look at verses 7 through 9, the king issues a city-wide policy. You don't just fast from food. You fast from drinking water. And the policy doesn't only apply to human beings. The animals in the city can't eat or drink either, and they have to wear sackcloth too. Imagine if you saw your friend's dog wearing human clothes, and you asked them why, and your friend says, he's repenting. In verses 7 through 8, why does the king require animals to fast and wear sackcloth? Right? This is more of a, like a Christian doctrine question. Can animals repent of their sins? Can animals sin at all? My dog's a sinner. Biblical fasting demonstrates a complete dependence on God and a request for his intervention in our lives. Even the, even the ancient Jews reading this would have thought, whoa, the animals are fasting? Imagine yourselves around the city or in the city of Nineveh. You, this is what you see. You see people wearing sackcloth. You see people praying. You see them not eating and drinking water. And you, not only, you don't only see what's going on, but you also hear it. You hear what's going on. You hear crying. You hear sobbing. Begging. Confessing. Repenting to God. And all the hungry and thirsty cattle and livestock and all the cows, they're, moo they're, they're mooing. They're moaning. 
They're bellowing. Imagine how the city sounded that night. Hundreds of thousands of people, along with all the animals, spanning seven and a half miles across, you hear everything. When was the last time you prayed like that? When was the last time our church collectively prayed like that? Think about it. When was the last time you broke down sobbing, crying out to God to lift the the burden of your sins off your shoulders? When was the last time you begged him for your life? And I'm not talking about your your physical life. I'm talking about your, your spiritual one. Later on, you're going to see that Jesus himself compares these repenting Ninevites to self-proclaiming believers like us. Nineveh's repentance is surprising. But what's even more surprising is they make all the animals do it, and they make you know, the animals do what they're doing. The city-wide policy is intense. You have to understand this, though. So this, is, this is important. You have to understand this. The text's primary role isn't to reflect the intensity of the city-wide policy, but it's to reflect the intensity of God's powerful mercy that's fueling Nineveh's repentance. The intensity isn't the policy. It's the powerful mercy of God. The author is presenting to us, believers, what the totality of what repentance looks like. God's grace and mercy swept through the entire city. God's grace and mercy did what all the other foreign uh, enemy nations could not do up to this point in history, which is, to, which is to penetrate the city and overthrow it. Assyria was too powerful at the time, but God proved himself to be even more powerful. The entire city demonstrates repentance, even things incapable of repenting like animals. Here in chapter 3, animals who cannot repent because they don't have souls, because they can't sin, because they're not made in the image of God, participate in an act that proclaims repentance. Repentance to God is intense and all-encompassing. God's mercy in your life, your life, believers, is intense and all-encompassing. As you go, believers, as you go through your mundane, boring, regular, day-to-day kind of life, do not underestimate in your life the wickedness of your sins. And do not underestimate in your life the power of God's mercy. And as a result, the power of your repentance. You have many sins. God has more mercy. You will be shocked what God can do through your repentance. The Ninevites experienced this firsthand. You see this in verse 10. It's the last verse. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Isn't that amazing? The prophecy has been fulfilled. God fulfilled his prophecy. Nineveh was overthrown. The people of Nineveh turned from their evil ways, and God turned from, in the words of the king, his fierce anger. There's there's intentional wordplay going on here. I want to address it with you all. So that word turn, that word turn 
is the same word for our word repent. But in verse 9, the king hopes that God turns. So if you wanted to translate it this way, you could say, or, you know, the king hopes that God would repent. But that, that obviously raises an issue for all of us, right? God doesn't sin. Therefore, he doesn't repent of his sins. So what's going on here? To address the issue, we must know what the word literally means, right? This is English, but it's coming from the, the original language, the Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word literally means to turn. That's what that means, to turn. So when we turn, when we repent, we turn from our, this is our sins, we turn from our sins and we turn to God. That's repentance. When God turns, God turns from his wrath and turns to his compassion, his forgiveness. That's the difference. That's the difference. And you also see the word relent there, relent. Relent is a different word. Relent means to sympathize. Relent means to be moved with compassion. So it's not until you get here to the end of the chapter that the main idea makes sense. The main idea of the message this morning. Because the word of God transforms us, we repent and God relents. He shows mercy. He shows compassion. From my study of Jonah and the rest of scripture, I see three components. Three components to repentance, and at least three. There could be more, but I see three. Repentance is something you say, it's something you do, and it's something you feel. It's something you say, it's something you do, and it's something you feel. Repentance is, repentance is something you say. I disobeyed you, Lord. These are the ways how I disobeyed you. I confess my sins. Repentance is something you do. You initially fixed your eyes on ungodly things. You, you, you have fixed yourself on addictions, evil or self-destructive thoughts, your hateful actions. These are things that you do. And then you turn and you fix your eyes on God, his holiness, his compassion, his mercy, his forgiveness, his provisions, provisions like scripture and the embassy church community. So it's something you say, it's something you do, and repentance is something you feel. Yes, it's something you feel. You feel something inside your heart emotionally that your sinful life is drastically contradictory to the very God you worship. When you repent, what you feel is true, and it's raw, and it's genuine. So those are the three aspects of repentance uh, uh, that I see, and you see all of those three things in Jonah chapter 3. And I want to be clear about something. When we say that God will relent if we repent, you know, if we say that if we only focus on how we need to fulfill these three components of repentance, it, sounds, it, sa it can sound like everything starts with us, right? It can, it can sound like everything starts with us. If we do something, then God will do something. Our text this morning helps us iron this out. Our text, Jonah 3, addresses this explicitly at least twice. First, verse 6, look at verse 6. In verse 6, it doesn't say that the king of Nineveh reached for the word of God. What does it say? The word of God reached the king of Nineveh. The word of God reached the king of Nineveh first. Secondly, verse 5, the people believed in God. That's great, but what happened before that? Verse 4 shows us that the word of God reached the people first. First. 
God's word came to Nineveh, and then they believed. This is still true for us today, believers today, believers who want to repent and be reconciled to God. Every single one of you who believe in God, believe in God because God's word came to you first. It was by God's word that we were saved. Jonah 3 shows us the sequence of our reconciliation to God. You're asking, how do I reconcile myself to God? There are three steps. First step, God overthrows us. Secondly, we repent. And and third, God shows us compassion. That's the order of how we are reconciled to God. In the same way that God used Jonah to overthrow Nineveh, roughly 700 years later, God used a greater Jonah to overthrow the world. But Jonah didn't live for over 700 years. So who's this greater Jonah? Using the, I'm going to use the same language of verse 10 and what God did for us. I'm going to, this is how I contextualize verse 10. As a Christian, when God saw what Jesus Christ did on the cross, how he turned us from our evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to us, and he did not do it. God did not do it because Jesus Christ did God did not do it to us because Jesus Christ had it done to himself. In God's justice, he should have destroyed all of us, annihilated all of us, obliterated all of us, overthrown all of us. But in God's mercy, Jesus Christ was destroyed. Jesus Christ was annihilated in our place. Jesus the sinless man who was punished as if he was a sinner in our place was self-sacrificially overthrown. Not dis- and, and he did this for us. He did it for his glory. And because he did that for us, all believers in him today, that's all of you, all believers in him today are overthrown. But not destroyed, but changed. Not annihilated, but transformed. Not obliterated, but loved. We are only alive today because Jesus Christ, after he died, became alive. After spending three days in the belly of Sheol, the realm of the dead, he resurrected from the dead on the third day, and we experience a supernatural, extraordinary, and real relationship with him from the moment of our existence until forever. Until forever. The king of Nineveh didn't know if he was going to to perish. By God's promise to us, his children, we know that we will not perish, but have everlasting life. Earlier, I said that we are saved by the word of God. The word of God is Jesus Christ. Half of my main idea is that we are transformed by the word of God. The word of God is Jesus Christ. Just like how Jesus, as God the Son, saved and forgave the Ninevites, Jesus saves and forgives us. But we are called to do what the Ninevites did. Repent. Repent. You have to repent of your sins. As Sergi read this morning, Jesus said in Luke eleven thirty two, 32, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, this generation, and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And this generation that Jesus is referring to, I think we're included. 
Yes, numerous generations have gone by, but I see all of us for the last 2,000 years uh, across countries, across cultures, as a multi-generational generation. I think Jesus is talking about us. We minimize our sins. We try not to think about it. We try not to do it again later. Oh, I won't tell anyone about this. I won't tell this to God. I'll just do better next time. If this is how you deal with your sins, your disobedience to God, Jesus is talking about people like you. Embassy, do not underestimate the mercy of God. God's mercy is as broad and as expansive as his sovereignty. God has more mercy than you do your sins. Our sins are many. God's mercy is more. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I would ask that you reflect on who you are in your life and what God has called you, what God has called you to be. Who God has called you to be. I, you live, right? If you don't believe in Jesus, you live like you're the king of your life. But maybe like the king of Nineveh, you need to arise from your throne and sit down in the dust with the rest of us. An experience being raised, being raised, resurrected, experiencing a resurrection from your previous dead self and into a new person, a changed, overturned, reformed, reformed, transformed, saved follower and worshiper of the real true king, the real true king, and who is he? He is the greater Jonah. He is the greater king. He is the greatest God, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for everything. We were dead in our sins, and you made us alive in Jesus Christ. We praise you that, that you're just so glorious. We praise you for your grace and your mercy. We praise you for salvation. You are so good, and, and you are so just. And you are so perfect, you are so holy, and you decided to adopt us as your sons and daughters anyway. Just, you're so amazing. We praise you for who you are, Lord. And in your son, Jesus Christ's name, that we pray through the Holy Spirit. Amen.